After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? And I answered, Sir, you know... And he said, these are those who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, as we consider these words, we pray, as always, for insight and understanding into the relationship that you're calling us into. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're continuing our fall sermon series here on the books of Revelation and Daniel. And uh, as you, uh, you may know, there's a lot of information in both of those prophetic books. And so we're doing kind of a survey. There's just no way in this format that we can get into all the details there. And so uh, uh, Michelle and I, we've got to come up with a class or something that we can uh, get into a little bit more detail. But we're going to do our best to cover some of the highlights. And so today we're looking at this kind of famous passage in Revelation chapter 7. And uh, by the way, you can find the first two messages in the series last week on Daniel 3 and then Revelation 14 the previous week on adventhope.org where we put all of our uh, teachings, all of our sermons on there. So that's adventhope.org. We hope you go back and catch up if you haven't been with us. Uh, Today we're looking at Revelation chapter 7, as you could see on the screen. And uh, so this is, uh, John, let me give a little bit of background for those who are maybe unfamiliar to the story of uh, the book of Revelation. So uh, John, who is the author, was a, uh, an exile on the island of Patmos, and God comes to him and gives him a, a, a vision, a vision of the work of uh, Jesus. And so he's recording this vision, and that is what makes up the entirety of the book of Revelation. It's John recording what he's seeing God who comes to him in like dramatic fashion and is giving him all of these scenes. Some of them John apparently didn't completely grasp himself, but he was writing this down, recording, and uh, that is for us to now uh, wrestle with. And so uh, we see here John in, cha- or John in chapter 7 of Revelation telling us about this great crowd. Now we actually have two records of this. The first one is found in the per- first part that we didn't read of Revelation chapter 7. And uh, there it talks about the crowd in number. So first we hear, again, I didn't read this. You can go read this for your homework. 
Revelation chapter 7, verse 1, where it says that uh, John hears about a crowd that is numbered 144,000. And uh, then we're told in kind of loving detail about the 12 tribes that this uh, represents. So 144,000 people, he hears that number that probably brings a warm place to his heart because as a, a Jewish man of the first century, he, he, uh, he took pride in his, in his ethnicity and his background. And so he hears 144,000, then broken into these uh, different 12 tribes made up of 12,000 people each. But then um, in the part we read today, we're told that he looked and he saw not 144,000, but he saw a great multitude in which nobody could count, made up of people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. So he hears 144,000 and the and, and, uh, of, Jewish, uh, of, of, of Jewish background, but when he looks, he sees a great crowd from every tribe, language, tongue, and people. Now, some students of the Bible have suggested that these are two distinct groups of people. One of the most, in my opinion, egregious uh, uh, arguments for this is that these are distinct people, that the 144,000, that they're God's Delta Force SWAT team, super spiritual people, and then the rest of the, the second crowd is like the, the plebeians, you know, they're the rest of us who just barely snuck in, and, uh, but we're also there, and so God is making a distinction. I think the text does not support that idea, uh, primarily because we see this idea of, of God explaining the same thing in different ways throughout the Bible. Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, a great example, starting off the Bible, you have two creation accounts. Some people say they're two different creations. No, the Bible just likes to describe the same thing in different ways time and time again. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, same, same thing that's being described, the creation account, but described in different ways. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, same uh, events, same gospel story, but from four different perspectives, and you see this over and over and over again in the Bible. And so I assert to you that, Genesis, that uh, Revelation chapter 7, that these two groups, the 144,000 and this great multitude are one in the same, and it's a description of the people that God has rescued from the brokenness of this, of this world. Now, uh, the group is described as coming from the great tribulation, which is really just the Bible's way of saying that they have been uh, rescued from the tumultuous times that precede the literal return of Jesus. So this is the, 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 the group of, of people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people that uh, have been rescued from those times preceding uh, the, the return of Jesus, tumultuous times that we're told. And then we're, we're told that they are, have been washed in the, the blood, or their robes have been washed in the blood. Now, this is a little bit counterintuitive. We don't think of uh, blood washing things. In fact, usually it's blood that, that stains something. Um, I was very weirdly uh, attacked by a palm tree in Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago. Um, I was walking with some, uh, with some friends, and it was late at night, and we were in the shadow, by the way. It was at night, so there was no shadow of White Memorial Hospital. So if those from Los Angeles, you know where I was. I was in the shadow of White Memorial Hospital. Literally, I could see it there, and I'm walking and I'm talking, and as sometimes I do, I get engrossed in conversation, and there was a small palm tree that was unkempt. It was, it was not trimmed, in my opinion, properly. Who am I to, I don't know anything about trimming palm trees, but I ran into the palm tree, and um, 
I was bleed. It was a whole thing. There was blood and it stained. And, and anyway, totally irrelevant to what we're talking about, other than the fact that I was bleeding and it got on my clothes. And blood is usually not thought of as a cleansing, cleansing agent. So this is kind of a counterintuitive idea, the idea that blood would would clean, especially something like a white garment. By the way, first century, a little hard to get a garment white because, you know, you're using natural materials. Most of them aren't very white. And so the idea that the, these materials have been cleansed and made, like, white, which is not easy to produce uh, because of the blood is, again, a great metaphor and somewhat counterintuitive to the way we think about how blood works. But the idea here is that this blood is powerful and it is a cleansing agent and it can make something uh, clean uh, that isn't maybe inherently clean. Uh, there's also another element of the, the, the blood uh, uh, metaphor here. So you have the cleansing agent, but there's also an element of uh, commitment that is actually further explored in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, the companion text to this this uh, blood cleansing text in Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 12 verse 11 says this, talking about the same group of people. They triumphed o- over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. And so the idea is that this group triumphs because of the blood of the Lamb, uh, but also because they didn't uh, shrink from a death, that they were not afraid of death because of the blood of the Lamb. And so there's an element of commitment there, commitment on behalf of God and His Lamb, and also commitment on behalf of those in the, the, the crowd and the great multitude who are believing and putting their trust in this God. So cleansing and commitment is identified here as part of this a metaphor of blood cleansing. Now, the Lamb here and throughout the book of Revelation represents uh, Jesus, the the Son of God. If you remember the Bible story, and you go back specifically to the first five books, there's a lot of talk about uh, the sacrificial system, the, the, the ancient system that God set up to help his people understand what his plan was for rescue from the broken world, right? And so, they had the sacrificial system where innocent animals were killed and their, their blood was, uh, was used to remove guilt. And every day in the morning and the evening, there was a lamb that was sacrificed for the guilt of all the people. And uh, it was symbolizing the taking away of the sin. So here, uh, the lamb is speaking not of a little innocent baby lamb, but of uh, Jesus himself, emphasizing the fact that Jesus is the real sacrifice that takes away the guilt of the people. And so you see this uh, lamb throughout the book of Revelation. And so again, replacing the Jewish ceremonial service with the true one true lamb, Jesus, God's son. And so the implication here is pretty, it's pretty straightforward for us as we think about like, what do we get out of Revelation chapter 7? You know, every time we engage with the Bible, God is wanting to communicate something to us about where we are and what's going on in our, in our experience as well as our community. So it's communal and it's individual when we engage with the Bible. So what is, what do we, God, what is God trying to tell us here in Revelation chapter 7? I think it's pretty straightforward that people should put their trust in the God of the universe, the creator of God, who has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves by providing this sacrifice, this lamb whose blood cleans our guilt. We should put our trust 
in him. This is the rule, the implication of Revelation chapter 7. Like, you wash your garment that needs to be cleaned, and you wash it in the, the, the blood of Jesus, the, the one who is sacrificed for us, and his blood cleanses us. Pretty straightforward message, I think. Uh, the problem, though, is that we, uh, we wrestle with this idea. And so, you know, I know a lot of Christians who, even as straightforward as this is, are kind of bummed out about life and, and confused about things. And it leads to, to our main question uh, for today. And that is, why is it that so many of us, thinking of those who maybe have at some point acknowledged the validity of, of Christianity or following Jesus, why is it that many of us still are so troubled and apprehensive about our relationship with God. Why? Why are we so, so troubled? And let me tell you, this is not just a made-up question. I know a lot of Christians, and I've, I've been there throughout our, our experience, who are like disturbed and maybe even bummed out about their experience, even though God through the Bible is trying to be clear. And here in Revelation 7, is very clear, like if you embrace God's work in Jesus and you allow your clothes to be washed in the blood, you're part of the family. You're in the <laughs> great multitude, the multitude that's made up of people from all over the world. So why, even though that reality is clearly taught in the Bible, are so many uh, people of faith still troubled and apprehensive about their relationship with God? Maybe you're in that camp. Maybe today you're feeling like a little apprehensive. Maybe you're feeling like you're not the kind of person that God can really accept. Uh, and yet, Revelation 7 says, all you have to do is wash your, 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 your clothes in the blood of Jesus. In other words, rely on Jesus, and he will clean you of all your guilt, and yet we remain apprehensive. Why is that? So, a couple responses to that question, as always. First of all, overcoming a merit-based system of, of evaluation is incredibly difficult. And if we think about our experience, most of us have been steeped in a merit-based system of value, whether it's our career, uh, whether it's our, uh, our job, uh, whether it's our school system. For some of us, our family was a merit-based system. Like, we got our worth and we got our value by performing and doing what is right, right? So this, this is especially in a Western context, it's kind of how the world works. When you go to work, your, the, your, your, your uh, work and your boss, and they've hired you to perform a task, and if you don't perform a task properly, then you might not be working there very long. And so this merit-based system we've been steeped in, and it just, it's a little bit hard to get over. So when the, the gospel is presented to us that is not merit-based, it's a little bit hard to overcome. And so this meritocracy, this system in which we have been uh, steeped is, is ingrained in our brain, and it's challenging for us to get over that. And so we bring that into our religious experience. And we think, well, <laughs> you know, everything else is merit-based, so my value in God's eyes must be rooted in my ability to perform or to be the kind of person that I'm supposed to be. And then on top of that, religion hasn't always been as clear as it should be about the assurance of God's rescue. So religion itself hasn't been great at communicating this idea that our value is not rooted in our merit and our ability to perform. 
And in fact, uh, religious systems and Christian systems and Adventist systems have sometimes used merit to manipulate people, to get them to perform in a, a particular way. And so the church has often encouraged this merit-based system in order to encourage people to do the right thing. Uh, religion has kept this aspect of, of merit. Your value is, is rooted at some level in what you do and how you perform and how good you are. And so the, the good people get the, get the most. They get the stars in the proverbial crown. If you do the right thing, you're going you're gonna to be uh, thought of uh, better, and uh, that's going to have some impact on your relationship with God and with each other. And so assurance, the idea that actually outside of your merit and ability of form, that you are assured rescue and you are assured to be part of the family of God is, is, is not always a given and hasn't always been communicated effectively in the church. And so this can leave us disturbed. No wonder we're we're disturbed, and we're, we're, we, you know, we might claim to be Christian, but we're still like apprehensive about our performance and so on because we've been steeped in that, and then the church hasn't always done a great job uh, counteracting that. Now, think about this a little bit and how kind of messed up this, this is. I mean, if your family <laughs> ran this way, right? You're not, you're not a part of the family unless you perform in a particular way, or, you know, let's say that you're, uh, you're thinking about a significant other and you're thinking about, you know, uh, maybe tying the knot with them, uh, but uh, the ability to, to, to do so or your, is, is based on your ability, your merit, and how good you are or where you are in your career. That's kind of that's messed up, right? So the idea that we're in our family based not on what we can do, but on who we are is the message that God is trying to get across to us. And what he's communicating in Revelation chapter 7, and yet again in our religious experience, that is not always well communicated. That it's who we are and it's who we connect with in Jesus, not based on what we do and how well we uh, perform. Because if we're honest, it's pretty easy to trick people into looking like pretty religious and pretty uh, good. It's, it's easy to kind of hack the system, right, and look like we've got it all together. I mean, this is an epidemic in, in Christian circles, right, where uh, we can put on the outside uh, charade of having it together and looking good and doing the right things, but still having, like, brokenness and all kinds of issues in our heart. And of course, in Jesus' most famous sermon in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, he talks directly about uh, this issue, like, Okay, you haven't murdered anyone, but do you have anger in your heart, right? He goes at the heart. Jesus could see beyond the, the charade, and yet for many of us, for many of us, it's pretty easy to, to look like we've got it all together and that we are doing things that are good. Uh, finally, we, by the way, we know in our hearts when we don't have it together, for most of us. I mean, unless you're, you know, you, 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 you have a mental health issue that has gotten you beyond being able to be self-reflective on your, yourself, most of us are able to, to, to identify the areas in which we're broken inside. And so we know, even if we're putting up a good front and putting on the charade of having it all together, we know there is something wrong inside. And that's why, why we're not experiencing the joy and, 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 and grace that we should have and maybe are, are bummed out by our experience. We know where we should be. 
We're not there. We're pretending like we're there, and yet our human hearts know that we don't have it together. Uh, finally, we have apprehension about our relationship because, with God because we are uncomfortable putting control in someone else's hands. Um, I will confess, this is a, uh, this is a challenge for me. Um, I am the worst backseat driver or front seat driver. Basically, if I am not driving, I am not fun to be with in the car. And so my wife, Sarah, has talked about giving me like a fake steering wheel that just attaches there so when I'm not driving, I can feel that little sense of control that you have, you know? And so we haven't gotten that far yet, but I know, I think that may be coming for my birthday uh, here in a couple weeks, so the fake steering wheel. So I struggle with like a little bit of a control issue, so I don't know about, about, about you, but putting things in someone else's hands completely, which is what Revelation 7 is inviting us. We wash our robes in the blood of Jesus, therefore Jesus covers us, is putting things in God's control, and that can be a little bit disturbing because, you know, who knows what's going to happen, and that is a little bit disconcerting. So being in control, even if it's being in control and heading the wrong direction, sometimes it's more comfortable than uh, being out of control and heading in the right direction. And so then we can fool ourselves into thinking that things are going well even when they are not, or thinking that we're going in the right direction even when we're not. Um, and then on top of that, there are all kinds of other things that happen when we are in control, so we don't like to give up control, but there are all kinds of things that we do when we're not in control. One of my, one of my favorite um, examples of this is found in one of my favorite books on discipleship written by Kelly McGonigal called The Willpower Instinct. A couple years ago, we actually did a whole afternoon discipleship class called Faith Lab, and we used McGonigal's book, The Willpower Instinct. It is by no means a, uh, she, I, she, I don't know if she's a religious person or not, it's not a religious book, but so many great insights. And one insight that she brings uh, to, to mind is what's called moral licensing. And I think it shows like why the problem of us being in charge <laughs> uh, and us taking the wheel is, is actually an issue and it doesn't work out. So this is uh, McGonagall in the book called Willpower Instinct. She says, anything you moralize becomes fair game for moral licensing. If you tell yourself that you are good when you exercise and bad when you don't, then you're more likely to skip the gym tomorrow if you've worked out today. Tell yourself that you're good for working on an important project and bad for procrastinating, and you're more likely to slack off in the afternoon if you made progress in the, mor in the morning. Simply put, she says, whenever we have conflicting desires, being good gives us permission to be a little bit bad. So breaking that down, what she's saying is like, if we have any history or experience of doing something well or good, right, that we think of as morally good, so the issue is like if you moralize everything, like exercise, say, well, okay, exercise is a moral issue. I must exercise. But you, you've exercised, you moralize that, and you give yourself credit for the good thing that you do. So that, that gives you license to do a little bit bad. Now, this is, doesn't make any sense. It's totally ridiculous. It's not helpful at all, but it's how our 
broken brains think. Well, I've done a little good. good. So, you know, if we moralize, like, what we eat, and we're like, okay, well, I ate, I mean, we've all done this, like, <laughs> I ate pretty good this morning, so now it's the evening, I can go crazy. And then we do go crazy, and it ends up spiraling, and we feel bad about ourselves and whatever, but this is how moral licensing works. So, you know, we don't like giving up control, but when we take control, we kind of come up with all kinds of foolishness, how to mess things up, and moral licensing is a great example. We also do this thing with the, the, the Bible, talking about moralizing things. We've moralized the Bible, okay? Uh, and I think when you moralize the Bible, when you make the Bible, it, when you make the primary uh, purpose of the Bible uh, uh, as being a moral handbook, you ruin the power of the Bible, okay? The Bible is not primarily a moral handbook. Okay, there have been a lot of religious texts written over the thousands of years that human history has been around that are moral guidelines. The Bible is not a moral handbook primarily, all right? It has moral teaching in it, but it's not primarily a moral handbook. The primary purpose of the Bible is to tell the story of God's work on behalf of human history, okay? It's not, the primary purpose of the Bible is not to tell us about heroes of times past who achieved great uh, moral heights. Sometimes we make that mistake too. So we talk about the heroes of the Bible. We've said it many times here before. There are no heroes in the Bible. You pick your, your, most, your, your most triumphant hero of the Bible, David, terrible guy. Abraham, awful, did some terrible things. These are not heroes of the Bible. There's only one hero in the Bible, and it is the Lamb. The Lamb is the hero of the Bible. And so the Bible's primary purpose is to tell the story of God's work on behalf of humanity. If there is one thing that I wish that we could just all embrace and remember, it's that. God, a God who is longing to tell the story that he loves humanity so much, that he loves his kids so much, that he wants to communicate it. And he took 66 books to get the message across. And we take that, and we get little points, and we try to moralize it. And McGonagall says that's going to fail every single time. When you moralize things, because you, you play tricks on yourself, and you try to figure out how to do what is wrong, even though you know you should do what is right. Moralizing things doesn't work for us. It doesn't work. So when we try to take control, we screw it up every single time. God is calling us into a relationship with him, and he has shown through those 66 books that he is going to do everything and has done everything possible so that we can be among that great unnumbered crowd from every nation tribe, tongue, and people. Even this book, uh, Revelation, just a little side note, fun note, you know, hundred, almost everybody's done it, but uh, when we talk about this book, I've heard a million people call this the book of Revelations, as if the book is about these kind of abstract things that God is going to surprise us with, and uh, so we're like, all these little revelations, I can't wait to find. The book is not called, please, Revelations, plural. It, it, literally, the book is the, the revelation, singular, of Jesus. 
The Revelation of Jesus. That's the title of the book. It's one revelation. It's about Jesus. The book of Revelation is about Jesus. Again, God telling his story of his work through human history. That's what Revelation is. It's what the whole Bible is about. So when we take it and we moralize it, we screw the whole thing up and the Bible loses its power. The Bible's power is rooted in God's work, not ours. So, we're set up to screw this whole thing up. We, uh, we've been ingrained with moralism and merit as our basis. We don't like giving up uh, control. That's scary to us. And so, what hope do we have in this, me- me- this mess? Like, how do, we, how do we get beyond this? And how do we live as Christians who are joyful, as people who are joyful, because we can have assurance that God wants us to be a part of his great crowd that exists at the end of the age. How can we get beyond this sense of like our own inadequacy and live a new kind of joyful life, of, 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 of a life of peace rather than a one, one that is always disconcerted about our inabilities? That's the great question. And what we find time and time again is that when the gospel, the good news of God's work is continually put before us, whether we put it before ourselves or whether you hear it in your community of faith, when the gospel is put before you, that has a transformative effect on our hearts. When we see what God has done on our behalf, it's transformative. Our friend Ellen White, she says, I'm going to paraphrase something like this, but she says something like, it would be good for you to spend some time together every day considering the life of Jesus, especially the last hours. What she's getting at is like when you think and you look at the story of Jesus and see his work on, on our behalf, especially those last works, of, those last moments of atonement as he sacrificed, as he died, that has a profound transformative impact on our hearts because then hopefully our brains can click into gear and recognize this is not about me. It's not about my work. It's not about my achievement. It's not about my merit. It's about one who loves us so much, one who loves me so much that he's willing to go to the ends of the earth to bring me, to bring us back into right relationship with him so that we can stand on that day after the last tumultuous times before his return and we can say amen and we can throw our crowns down and we can worship and we can sing and we can take a heart and hope that God is, as he says, he's going to cover his tent over us. That we don't have to feel the, face the scorching sun because we exist in God's house. And he's, the lamb is going to be like a shepherd who leads us to cool waters. This is all imagery that if you list, lived in first century uh, Israel or if you were on the island of Patmos like John was, that was really compelling to you. Oh, <laughs> I have no place to hide from the sun, but God puts his tent over me. Oh, I'm thirsty. There's no place for water. God is a shepherd who leads us to clean water. This is the imagery that God is trying to get us uh, to understand. And God is inviting us to embrace his work in the gospel that he's done for us so that we can be a part of his great kingdom that he wants everybody to be a part of. Every nation, tribe, tongue, and people are invited into this kingdom. It's the best news ever. This is the best news ever. 
God who doesn't want anyone lost, everyone to come to, to salvation, and all to be a part of that great gathering who sings worthy to the Lamb. There was a great multitude, John said. Every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hand. That's a great, great image. Because of the work of Jesus on our behalf, because his death provided a way for justice to still exist in the universe, you got to have justice in the universe, so God provided a way for there both to be justice and for those who have been unjust to experience the life of being treated as one who is just. It's the great truth of the gospel. The Apostle Paul says it like this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become God's righteousness. <laughs> this is good news. God wants us to live at peace, not at apprehension with him. And so he's inviting us into a relationship with him that's not based on us having to earn it. Because Jesus has earned it for us. And so, may God do in you today what only he can do and bring you that peace through his salvation. Amen.